If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. We hope you've been enjoying the History Extra podcast and all it has to offer. Summer is the perfect time to delve deeper into the things you love. So subscribe to BBC History magazine for just £24.99 every six issues, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, you will receive a book of your choice worth up to £30. Choose from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921 by Anthony Beaver. In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition. In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. Or Persians, The Age of the Great Kings by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From hyperinflation and mass unemployment to the rise of fascism, fear has stalked the political landscape for the past century. That's what BBC radio producer Phil Tinline argues in his new book, The Death of Consensus, A Hundred Years of British Political Nightmares. 
Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Phil discusses how these fears have helped to forge new political eras, from the post-war welfare state to Thatcherism, and considers what these political crises can tell us about the current period of upheaval. So, Phil, you've just written a book called The Death of Consensus, A Hundred Years of British Political Nightmares. Given that we're talking in the midst of a cost of living crisis with inflation on the rise, this seems to be quite an opposite moment to be discussing political nightmares. In the the introduction to your book, you write, the most a political establishment can ever manage is a relative absence of agony. Now, taken in isolation, that's a, a pretty bleak statement, but actually at a time when many people are convinced that we're living through particularly fraught times, your statement kind of implies that there's nothing new to what we're experiencing at the moment. So, I mean, what's your take on that? Would you say that we're living in extraordinary times at the moment, or, or would you say we've kind of been here before? I think we've been somewhere a little like this before, and I certainly think we've been in a place that feels really bad before, and I suppose that, in a way, is the core of of the book, is if you're uh, immersed in a political moment in the day-to-day of, of of either politics or indeed, as you say, trying to afford to live, uh, it can feel quite overwhelming. And I think, you know, maybe one of the things that taking a longer historical view can do, it, it can be extremely worrying. It can You can see all the worst possible things that could happen. But what you can also see is how people thought that the worst was going to happen. And that actually, as I argue in the book, that was part of a process by which you end up back somewhere that's not nirvana. It's not everyone sitting around singing Kumbaya and politicians holding hands and agreeing with each other. Because of course that never happens. That's not the job of politics. But you can get back to something that feels a bit better than this. A lot of commentators recently have drawn comparisons between today's economic woes and the trauma of the 1970s, a decade that uh, to some people is defined by empty food shelves, rubbish piling on the streets of major cities and the lights going out. Now, on the face of it, with, with rising inflation, strikes and stark political divisions... You know, you can see you can see why people are drawing these parallels. But I mean, do you think that's being overdone at the moment? Are we sort of returning to the nineteen seventies? Well, the thing about the idea of returning to a point in the past is is it sort of suggests that that point in the past is a sort of eternal bubble that's just sort of sitting there. But of course, the past has a past. You know, the only way to the nineteen seventies is through the nineteen sixties. And so, what's happening, I think, is that both in terms of inflation and in a slightly different way in terms of strikes, is that we've arrived at similar issues. There are similar vexed points of contention. There are similar urgent problems, but we've got to them from quite a different point. Now, they generate similar images to some extent, and they certainly generate the opportunity to go back to those old images. But I would say that the the backstory to the 1970s is something we need to attend to, not just to the sort of the piles of rubbish in the streets, the unburied dead, the candlelit power cuts, the mass pickets, etc. So, I mean, this will take a moment to unpack. Basically, what I would argue is that the backstory that leads us Uh, to the 1970s, because time in the end only goes, obviously, in one direction, is about the post-war consensus. Now, as you said at the beginning, I give a very sort of 
carefully sort of circumscribed definition of consensus, not to be depressing, but because that word can easily be overused. And a lot of historians are very sceptical about talking about periods of consensus because it can imply that there's no disputes. My argument is that not, not that there's no disputes at all, but there is something that we agree is unthinkable, is a nightmare to which we can never go back. And in the post-war period, unlike now, the thing that is haunting people is the memory of the 1930s, the memory of mass unemployment. Now, that underpins a whole way of thinking about the economy, a whole way of thinking about politics, and it gives great power. They choose to use it in different ways, but it gives great power to the trade union movement. Now, it's that that is coming into contention in the 1970s, because what politicians are trying to do is to restrain the power of the trade unions, both to go on strike in in ways that aren't necessarily to do with pay at all. It might be demarcation disputes between different unions in a workplace, but also uh, because there is a theory, not agreed by everybody, that the more workers push their pay up, the more prices go up and you have a wage price spiral, a phrase we've been hearing a lot recently. What the politicians of both parties, governments of both parties, try to do from 1969 through to the end of the 70s is they try to restrain the power of the trade unions without breaking the taboo on mass unemployment while trying to maintain full employment. Now, the way they do that is through incomes policy, which is a sort of first an agreement and then increasingly a legal sort of fiat saying we have to keep pay at a certain level. The, the, The context for the imagery that we remember from the winter of discontent is that there is this sort of last-ditch, remarkable agreement after years of strife from 69 to 74. There's a deal between Labour and the trade unions. Michael Foote, the new, uh, long-term backbencher, now Employment Secretary, Jack Jones, head of the Transport General Workers Union, once a, a sh- radical supporter of shop stewards, make a deal, the social contract, where workers will keep their pay demands under control and in return the government will do lots of nice things. Now, it's that fundamentally, I mean, it's reinvented in 78, but it's basically that that breaks down in the winter of discontent. So those images of bin bags in the streets, of, you know, the the unburied dead, of pickets outside hospitals are vivid representations of a particular momentary situation, but they represent something much, much more sort of long term and significant. They represent the idea, terrifying to some people in power, that trade unions have more power than the government. Now, where we are now is not in a position where I think anybody would claim. Now, we hear phrases like, you know, uh, trade unions holding the country to ransom. But the basic politics of it are quite different to where they were in the 70s. So just to finish off in very quickly, I would say that there is clearly, again, a power struggle playing out. There is clearly massive sort of contention and polarisation about pay, but it's starting from the position of, you know, 30 years of uh, the sort of Thatcherite uh, model, much of which, you know, was prosperous and wages were rising. But since the 2008 crash, that's broken down, pay is flatlined. And I think it's that context which leads us to the same images, but from a different angle. And would you argue then that there are different victims of the cost of living crisis today as, as in comparison with what was going on in the 70s? Well, yes, I think I would, in the sense that many, many more people, especially in the private sector, are in trade unions in the 1970s. So in the book, you identify three distinct periods in the century or so since the advent of mass democracy in 1918. I wonder if you could talk us through those three eras and what are their distinguishing features? 
I would say that the beginning of this is the sort of messiest bit of the history. So, as you say, from 1918, we have you know basically mass democracy. Uh, younger women are added to the electorate in 1928, and that's when you really get it. But it, it's it's basically there, and. You have, in this new context, you have a sort of standoff between Labour, now with the vote, heavily trade unionised, empowered by the war and their sacrifice in the war on one side, and Capital, very worried, and it's cast in these terms by Stanley Baldwin, you know, the Conservative leader, this is not sort of Marxism, and Capital, which is very worried about prices rising. And you have, first of all, you know, a spike in inflation, then you have a very sort of strong deflation, the Geddes axis swung and cuts spending and uh, inflation drops and unemployment hits a million in 1921 and stays at or above a million, sometimes a lot above a million, through to 1940. Now, that needs to be sort of sorted out. And in the end, after the general strike in 1926, you have a sort of reversion of uh, the consensus that had been there before mass democracy, which basically says... Uh, we mustn't get into the government mustn't get into debt and for the moment we're going to maintain free trade we're going to keep the pound on the gold standard so we have sound money and we're going to be a bit nicer to the trade unions than than has happened at some points in the past but but there's a sort of a a, a kind of strained consensus these consensus are often strained compromises they're not happy-go-lucky. That that lasts for a little bit. But then there's a financial crisis in 1931, and that starts to really break down. And crudely, from 31 to 40, you have increasing pressure to spend more money, firstly, to help the unemployed, which doesn't really happen, and then to fight the Nazis, and it does. So that's the first period. Out of the Second World War, you get uh, what's often called the post-war consensus, which runs from 1945 and sort of begins to break down at the end of the 60s, where, as I say, full employment is the crucial thing. We mustn't go back to mass unemployment. That period is as frightened of mass unemployment as the 30s was of big deficits and you know ruinous inflation. That breaks down in the 70s. Uh, you have the sort of period coming from uh, the mid-80s when Thatcher has really established her sort of hegemony, free market consensus, with a strong state. That runs through to 2008, lots of prosperity in the latter part of that period, and then the crash has sent us back into contention. So the three periods the three periods of the death of consensus are the 30s, the 70s, and the last 14 years, basically. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... When Dominic Cummings was interviewed by Laura Koonsberg, she said, how do you think people see you? And he said, as a nightmare. You know, it, it is absolutely the part of the lingua franca of politics. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And moving on from that, I'd like to talk now about two of the protagonists in your book, Michael Foote and Keith Joseph. These two men had very different interpretations of what constituted the greatest threat to Britain's national security, didn't they? And, and the different ways in which they promoted their solutions to this threat had a really significant um, impact, didn't it, on Britain's 20th century trajectory. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about these two men, please, and, and how they changed our modern history. Sure. I mean, I think they're fascinating and they are, you know, very similar in age. But Foote is the great champion of 1940 and the beginning of, you know, what becomes the post-war consensus. Joseph, who's only, four, I think, four years older, is the the great champion of, you know, what becomes Thatcherism, but of, of breaking down and, and moving away from the very things that Foote had championed. And there are periods in the 70s where they clash and they're both extremely articulate men. Foote, the better parliamentary performer for good or ill and there's a very funny uh, scene after actually foot has you know lost all power and joseph is dominance in the early 80s where he does this whole routine about the magician who uh, smashes up a watch and then says he's forgotten the rest of the trick and can't put it back together as a sort of way of taking the mick out of keith joseph but but joseph has won at that point so so what can we tell you about these people well they both went to oxford they both ha- i mean foot has the more illustrious background in a way foot is the child of a ferociously sort of Cromwellian dissenting uh, with a capital D and a small d uh, liberal uh, with a small L and a big L uh, Isaac Foote uh, who is a member of uh, Parliament now and again based in the West Country and who actually resigns from the national government over the uh, ending of free trade in 1932 Foot at this point is at Oxford. Foot is hanging out with the son of another politician, John Cripps, who's the son of Stafford Cripps, who is a Labour MP who is moving from being a pretty sort of mainstream figure to really taking up really quite eye-watering positions. So Foot becomes Cripps's sort of uh, protege in a way, uh, and and is is brilliant at having uh, having mentors in the 1930s. He manages to have Cripps and Bevan and Beaverbrook as as people that he he uh, attaches himself to. Before he's out of his twenties, he's the editor of the Evening Standard. But the crucial thing about Foot is in 1940, when he's working at the Standard as assistant editor, uh, when the news is coming in from Dunkirk, this is the moment that makes his life and why he is a 
you know, a crucial figure in our history. Everything else flows from this moment, I would argue. It's as the news is coming in from Dunkirk at the beginning of June 1940 that the British troops are being evacuated and the whole thing is, has turned into a rout. And we're lucky, frankly, to get the army out. Foote and two other men, uh, Frank Owen and Peter Howard, who both work for Beaverbrook as well, go up onto the roof of the Evening Standard building uh, just off Fleet Street and work out what they're going to do about it. And what they decide they want to do is draw attention not only to the fact of Dunkirk, which is obviously all over the papers, they've been putting it all over the paper themselves earlier that day, but actually to try to drive from power the remaining Chamberlainites. Churchill's in government by this point, but Chamberlain's still in the war cabinet, to drive the Chamberlainites out and to do so in a way which basically declares the whole of the period from 1929 as a period of terrible folly and dangerous complacency which has left us in this appalling state. Now, the history of that, the actual accuracy of that is, is you know, full of holes, but this is not, as I say in the book, this is not a scholarly weighing of the evidence. This is a political bomb. And that's its importance. It rewrites the narrative incredibly effectively. So in four days, they hammer out this book called Guilty Man, which attacks, you know, chapter by very, very short chapters, attacking Chamberlain, attacking Sir John, John Simon, the sort of overly cautious chancellor, and associating, and this is crucial, and then by no means the only people who do it, associating the fear of rearming to fight the Nazis and spending the money necessary to do so with the fear of fighting unemployment and spending the money necessary to do so. So unemployment and the Nazis are associated again and again by these people and other people. J.B. Priestley uh, says, you know, once uh, Hitler and his crooked cross has vanished, we need to get rid of the evil dream of unemployment as well. And the two are absolutely associated. So that's Foote's basic role. And what he does after that is defend that idea. But so Foote Foote is, by the 1970s, Foote is this curious figure who was famous in 1940 uh, has been a sort of, you know, a backbencher for a very long time, lost his seat for one, one term, and then comes back in late in his career, comes back onto the, comes onto the front bench for the first time, eventually in the cabinet as employment secretary in 1974 to shore up what he had been, you know, there at the creation of, which is this, this model, which is a polity based on maintaining full employment as best you can. And he keeps talking about the, the mass unemployment of the 30s right through to 1983 when he has a disastrous election, leads Labour to disastrous election defeat. Keith Joseph, meanwhile, has a career that's sort of the opposite shape. Uh, Joseph is the son of, uh, he grows up in London, he's the son of a businessman. Joseph is, is always very, very concerned about the poor. Now, he's concerned about it from the consciousness of being quite wealthy himself. But, you know, he used to steal food from the breakfast table as a child to go and give to a beggar in Sloan Square. You know, when it, one of the things I was most struck to discover, uh, when he was a student at Oxford, he goes with via a Quaker group. And this was a thing that a lot of students did in the late 30s. He goes to work with unemployed miners in near Rotherham, in, near Maltby in Yorkshire for a week. Uh, now, it's slightly curious, and the biographies, I can't quite make sense of exactly what was happening compared to what he says in, in Hansard about it, because he says he was worked down a mine for a week, but he's also working with unemployed miners, so I'm not quite sure what was going on there. It is possible, I mean, I dug into this as best I could, it's possible that he was he, there was a cooperative system that unemployed miners had used to reopen a mine. But anyway, whatever. He goes down a mine for a week, and he says in the Commons, and I think in the 1950s, a week was quite enough for me. And yet... Here is the guy who, in 1974, in Preston, in September 1974, makes a speech 
prompted by rapidly rising inflation, where he says, we have to say goodbye to the ghosts of the gaunt, tight-clipped men in caps and mufflers who haunt us from the 1930s because inflation is more important. And in that speech, you see the turn from the worries that Foote had pushed to the fore so successfully with Guilty Man to the policy, which actually we basically still have today, which is that inflation is more important than unemployment. So so these are two very different interpretations of history, aren't they? Aren't they? That's a really interesting thing here. Well, they are, but they're interpretations of immediate periods as well. I mean, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, Joseph is sometimes portrayed as a sort of mad monk or as a sort of evil genius, which is a very sort of childish way to think about politics you know he was a complicated man like most people you know as was foot um you know foot was a great supporter at, at a personal level of enoch powell you know made a point of going up to him after the rivers of blood speech when he was being ostracized in the commons and t- patting him on the back uh, in a sort of hail fellow well met sort of way they're, they're three-dimensional humans and <laughs> with long and the other key thing with long long political careers we've slightly lost sight of how long these people stayed in politics you know decade upon decade but so, 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 yeah, it is a d- two different interpretations of history, but I think it's it's in a way it's more about because they know they knew what they were doing. It's about which bit of history you emphasise. I don't think if you actually asked them to agree on the facts, they would largely agree. The economic interpretation would differ, and then what was really important and most crucial to worry about would differ again. But yeah, they do represent two very strongly different emphases from the same generation, having impacts on different generations. Now you write that. This book is the story of how nightmares have hemmed politicians. Now, those nightmares have been both real and imagined and have encompassed everything from Nazi invasion and mass unemployment through to trade union tyranny. I mean, why do you think our political leaders have been such slaves to, to their fears over the past century? Well, I think slaves is maybe slightly strong because some of them do face them down. But I, I think this is how we all live, right? You know, we, we're constantly functioning between our memory of the past, good and bad, and our hopes and fears for the future. And what I'm trying to track is how those things, how one becomes more important than another and changes what's so-called possible. And I mean, the reason I like the word nightmares, I mean, I did. I was surprised to find how much it comes up. And I keep, you keep seeing it coming up. I mean, you know, I didn't put it in the book, but, you know, when Dominic Cummings was interviewed by Laura Koonsberg, she said, how do you think people see you? And he said, as a nightmare. You know, it, it is absolutely the part of the lingua franca of politics. And I think what's so interesting about it as a word is exactly what you put your finger on, is it can apply to things that are remembered, to things that are real right now, to things that are possible in the future. And that's why I like it as a word. It is ambiguous, and that's the point. Why are politicians hemmed in by this stuff? Well, I think it's partly, in significant part, is because they're trying to work out what everybody else is frightened of. They're trying to work out what we're all frightened of. And so to take mass employment, unemployment as an example, there's a moment in 1974 in a shadow cabinet meeting where Robert Carr, who had been employment secretary at the time when unemployment hit a million, and you watch him on the TV news that night, he looks like he's going to cry. And this is a guy who was grew up in wealth, but when he was being chauffeured, David Davis told me this story, when he was chauffeured into Westminster School in his dad's car, in some point in the 19, early 1930s, he, across Parliament Square, he saw a contingent of hunger marches arriving at Parliament, and the sight never left him. He says, somewhat clearly to his own surprise, in the Shadow Cabinet meeting in 1974, that people don't seem to be as worried about it as much. 
And Lord Hailsham, one of his shadow cabinet colleagues, writing about Powell in 1975, says, I would have been ashamed to sort of, you know, reject the, the worries about mass unemployment. But, but, but you can sort of see him saying, but perhaps I'm overdoing it. And you can sort of see how actually, you know, the public in some ways, particularly younger people who don't remember all that, are actually maybe getting ahead of this generation of politicians who do remember it. So it's a, it's a multivalent process of, of, of people trying to second guess each other's each other's fears. Dominic Sandbrook is very good, I think, on the way that Thatcherism was not, you know, one woman arriving in power and throwing a lever. It was it was based on how people were changing their minds. Is, is this a in any way a particularly British phenomenon, do you think? I mean, have other countries across Europe faced similar problems as this country? And have their stories been defined by this quest to find and maintain consensus in the same way that that, that Britain's has? So I would say that in terms of politics being shaped by nightmare, yes, I think this is not a specifically British thing. I think there is an inflection to it, which is sort of particularly British, which is that there is this, and you saw it a couple of weeks ago with some polling about young people's disillusionment with democracy, There is this notion that people have, this is sort of a meta notion, right? There is this notion that people have that the British have a notion that it can't happen here. So whenever anything scary comes up, people say, oh, well, everyone's very complacent and thinks it can't happen here. But actually, now people have been saying that for 100 years, right? I would really challenge that. People have been worrying about Britain turning into a dictatorship for ages, you know, since the the Edwardians, at least. And so I think there is a specifically British thing, which is we think we think... (laughs) that it can't happen here because we've got a long history and we you know our last revolution was in the 17th century so so it takes on a particular color for that reason but no i think it's clearly there uh, there's a story which illustrates this very very clearly which is uh heinrich bruning who is a couple of chancellors before hitler at the end of the 1920s beginning of the 1930s is imposing a swinging deflation on germany it leads to 6 million unemployed. And the reason that there are so many people unemployed, well, one reason, is that Heinrich Brüning, it cannot possibly go back to the hyperinflation of 1923. He is terrified of it. And he comes to Chequers and he t- says this to Ramsay MacDonald in the midst of, in June 1931, in the midst of the Labour government trying desperately to work out what to do about the pound tanking, uh, the, the pound being under massive pressure and are they going to have to cut unemployment benefit? And Brüning says to MacDonald, you know, we the choice is between you know uh, the cuts or allowing inflation. You may be allowed to, allow, to to let inflation happen. We cannot. Actually, the British follow the same nightmare, but it's more vivid in Germany. I mean, Bruning thinks he's going to be killed any day. He has to be driven to the driven to the boat in a sort of you know seal car and a seal or a seal train or something because he's in the immediate threat of assassination because it's setting so vicious in Germany. So no, absolutely not. Uh, it's absolutely not just a British thing. On consensus, I think actually the word consensus I think really comes into British politics in a big way from America. Uh, there's a whole historiography sort of battle in America in the 1960s, ironically, about whether America is a country that has basically been much more consensual than other countries, and that becomes a way to talk about politics. And that then becomes a way to talk about British politics. So no, it's not. It's not. That's not d- dependent on Britain either. On the subject of consensus, you've you've touched on this before, but it's, it's a hugely important important word, isn't it? Especially in the context of your book. So obviously in the book's title, and you discuss two periods of consensus on either side of the Second World War. Just briefly, how would you define consensus? And, and is a true consensus ever really been achieved in this country over the past century? 
I think if by consensus we mean everybody agreeing with something, then you know, even the, the, the very circumscribed definition I give that a consensus is agreeing that a particular thing must not happen, you don't get everybody agreeing to that. I mean, you know, there are people in British politics in the 1950s and 60s who will say, you know, we're over worrying about mass unemployment. What you get is is a sort of sufficient consensus for there to be. You often get more of a consensus between the front benches than the back benches because that's the nature of it. Uh, you know, if, if you're on the front bench, you have to engage in trade-offs. You have to engage in policies you think you can actually make work and have the you know, sufficient support of the, both of Parliament and, ideally, of the electorate. If you're on the back benches, that's not your job. So, so there's sort of grades of it. Uh, but the, as I say, my, my, my definition of it, deliberately kept quite constrained, is that is an agreement on something to reject. So, for instance, I would say that, you know, when we talk about, the, when people talk about the post-war consensus, very often one of the first things that springs to mind is the health service. Now, actually, I would argue that that's not particularly, consensus is not a particularly helpful way to think about the health service simply because, in, in terms of period specificity, because th- there is a long and complex story that leads to the National Health Service. In some ways, David Edgerton, the historian David Edgerton, argues that, you know, in some ways what's happening with the welfare state in, 1940, in the 1945 government is it's being extended to the middle class. The working class already have forms of it. Now it's complex and, you know, uh, through charities and, you know, but there are five government ministries thinking about social security, etc. It's a deliberately constrained definition precisely because something like the health service, you know, has a history before that, has a history after it. That's why I think homing, homing in on this one particular idea of full employment, the taboo on mass unemployment, gives you a workable definition. And even within that, I break it down into the taboo on uh, the consensus that we must have full employment Based on that, a consensus in industrial rela- a sort of consensus in industrial relations, because of that shared view allows for relatively collegiate discussions between employers uh, and workers and government. Relatively, there are still loads of strikes in the fifties, and then on top of that, you have this much vaguer notion of consensus politics. But no, it's it's a term to be treated with care. Can history, the events that you cover in your book, help us pre- predict what's going to happen next? You can try. I mean, it in a way is a history of predictions, you know, it's a history of nightmare. One form of nightmares are our fears for the future, right? So I think, you know, hubris is right there next to you with a cricket bat ready to whack you around the head, right? But, uh, or hubris and nemesis. But I think you can make tentative projections and you can come up with hypotheses, right? And then you can watch them be knocked over. If you want me to offer one, then I will. But uh, I think you can, you can do, go some way down that track carefully. So, I mean, I think you can see over the course of the last 10 years, or the last 14 years, a process which has some similarities to what happened in the 30s and what happened in the 70s. History is not obviously cyclical, it's not predetermined, it doesn't always happen the same. But I think you can see a process of a, a particular nightmare giving a particular part of society a degree of sort of ring fence power. So if you're terrified of deficits and inflation, that tends to empower finance in the 30s. If you're terrified of mass unemployment, that tends to empower the trade unions, etc. I think what we've... uh, But what happens then is that those nightmares are are superseded by others. People don't want to let go of the old nightmares, and there's a sort of battle of nightmares, which eventually results in a new nightmare becoming dominant, and that creates a new sort of settlement. That's my basic sort of trajectory. So what's happening in terms of that now? Well, I would say that, and this is being played out literally as we speak, that for uh, people on the sort of uh, quote-unquote right of politics, there has been a journey since the crash away from 
the superseding of some of their nightmares about and when i say nightmares i do not mean to dismiss this at all there's a serious fears but in terms of the book nightmares about excessive government spending about excessive government borrowing indeed about you know re-empowered trade unions these are all things that have been absolutely foundational to the post-79 British polity and those have come under pressure and I think you can certainly see most strikingly in Boris Johnson's 2019 manifesto significant but also in Theresa May's actually uh, significant moves away from what was thought to be possible however we are clearly seeing with the rise of inflation significant pushback against that so that I think is what conservatives in particular Labour too, but particularly Conservatives are wrestling with at the moment. And there's I'm not, no comment on which is the right answer. But I think it is possible to see that process continue, uh, particularly given the loss of the Wakefield by-election. Uh, it is possible to see a resurgence of focus on, you know, government spending, levelling up, rim- infrastructure building. But we're also seeing a pushback in, uh, towards something that looks more like, sounds more like Thatcherism. So, so it's possible those would go either way, but maybe we may actually see levelling up. We'll see. For Labour, I think it's partly been about, and actually for Liberal Conservatives, it's partly been about, you know, how we think about uh, ideas like immigration and patriotism and belonging and security. And I think those have carried real connotations, again, which absolutely should be taken seriously, real connotations for people of of, of nightmarish things. And you saw this most uh, intensely around the Brexit vote, of course. I think, again, even before Brexit, you know, uh, Ed Miliband, for good or ill, was talking about immigration controls on his mugs. You've seen that process go through uh, a journey. I think the key thing, in a way, though, rather than trying to kind of guess what's happening, is just to sort of observe how what's changing. And I think what's changing is that, and why the word nightmare is useful, is that often what turns what you think is is you know a nightmare actually turns out to be something much more contingent and compromised so you know an obvious example is you know there was much talk for perfectly good reason after the brexit vote that that britain was going to you know that life was going to become quite difficult from an immigration point of view actually of course we've seen you know a rise in uh, both immigration and relaxation about immigration now you could argue that's because the press stopped talking about it you could also argue that people feel like it's under control whether it is or not but you know it's not necessarily the, the part of this is that it's about nightmares feeling more kind of vividly colourfully frightening than they turn out to be. And finally, Phil, how has the research you conducted to write this book changed your view of British politics over the past century? That's a good question. I know more about the trade union movement than I used to. So I think it's shown me, I mean, this is a slightly techy answer, but I think it's shown me quite how foolish it is to talk about the unions for more than a couple of sentences because the trade union movement is so for the best of reasons so so complicated because where it comes from so complicated and contains so many internal divisions and contradictions necessarily so that that's been a real kind of warning i think i think it has made me feel maybe a little more optimistic i mean i sort of i think the last sentence of the book is pretty optimistic before that, not, not so much, but I think it's made me feel more like the, the process, basically, the process of watching people's, really re- reconstructing people's fears in the past. What was the scenario they were imagining? What did they think would happen and why? And how many people thought that and how urgent was that? Watching those fears sort of rear up and be absolutely crucial to politics, shape politics, but then not actually happen, has made me look more, in a more sanguine way, at our own fears 
today. So it kind of put them in a, in a little bit more perspective then, I guess. I think fear and worry about the future and worry that democracy is, is, is stuck and can't solve it and that extremism will flood in. Those fears are part of the political process. And I think because this only happens every so often, and because we don't remember things that didn't happen, we remember things that did happen, it's very easy to think this is the first time this has happened, and that can be very frightening. And I think there is something cautiously, not reassuring, because we do not I'm not suggesting we should be complacent in any way at all, but there is something that gives some perspective if you can watch fears that are similar to your own play out in the past and understand how they played a role in democracy doing its job and that democracy was always being vulnerable, is necessarily a vulnerable thing by definition. And it can always happen here by definition. It's the wrong question to ask. The question is how likely is it to happen here? But, but seeing it both as vulnerable and as resilient, I think can give you a more balanced view. That was Phil Tinline. His book, The Death of Consensus, A Hundred Years of British Political Nightmares, is out now, published by Hearst. Phil wrote a feature on the history of inflation in Britain for the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Listener.